welcome to our Ecology Plus Design podcast. I'm Kendall Mainzer, and with me is my co-host, Dr. Travis Floor. Hello. We are thrilled to welcome Emily McCoy, landscape architect with Design Workshop in Raleigh, North Carolina. Emily is also an assistant professor of practice at NC State. Hi, Emily. Hello. And we are also grateful to welcome Keith Bowers back to Penn State. Keith is the founder and president of Biohabitats, a multidisciplinary organization focused on conservation planning, ecological restoration, and regenerative design. He joined us for our kickoff symposium when we launched E Plus D um, in 2017. And you can find his reflection in our follow-up publication that's hosted on Issue. So welcome, Keith. Great. Thank you. It's great to be back. So today we really... Um we gave you our brief, um, and we really wanted to pick your brains on um, ecology and design, kind of the state of and landscape architecture. Um, but more importantly, what do we need to do as an academy or as a profession to better address the long and emerging issues of biodiversity and uh, climate change? So it's no a load, yeah, no pressure. <laughs> it's a it's a massive loaded topic and question, that I'm sure. Well, I think uh, a, a few things. One, I think probably most of your audience knows that from a biodiversity standpoint, we're sort of heading for what scientists are calling this sixth grade extinction out there, right? And certainly, even without climate change, we're, we're losing biodiversity at accelerating rates. So climate change is only exasperating or accelerating all of that as well. So I think it's imperative for all, I think all design firms have a responsibility in, in one way or another to be addressing both climate change and the loss of biodiversity and everything that they do, whether that's an architecture firm, an engineering firm, a landscape architecture firm, or a planning firm. And so it really starts at the level of what is the firm doing from an operations standpoint and how are they sort of walking the talk all the way to how are they interacting with their clients and their communities and neighborhoods and cities that they work in. I'll just add, I think there's a huge gap. Architects have the 2030 challenge, and that goes from not just their built work and how they influence the climate um, issue that we have, but how from an operations standpoint of a business, how do we walk the talk and operate in a way that um, leads by example? And so there's a huge gap in the landscape architecture community to be focused and have measurable goals that we're working towards as firms, as businesses, as organizations um, to do our part. And so I think, you know, rallying around something like the 2030 challenge would be a good next step. Luckily, the Landscape Architecture Foundation has just issued the positive uh, climate positive toolkit um, that's out there. That's a great resource, but it's just a start uh, to connect all the dots. Interesting question um, <clears throat> or interesting response. Sorry, the um, mostly because our it leads into the question of kind of professional ethics, um, which often, for better or worse, becomes political in nature. And our, our previous guest, Jack Dangerman at Esri, had a had a mantra that it's often personal responsibility first um, and more small firm collectives. Um, he didn't really believe that large firms or nation states or entities like ASLA would ha make much of a difference at all. Um, and on top of that, um, what was the last thing? Um, very much apolitical. Um, 
yet, you know, when we talk about organizations and their political nature, um, it seems like should there be a ethics on climate change and biodiversity within our profession to carrot and stick the response to these issues? I, I would probably say yes, but I think the one thing you left out in, in that description is that we're working under a capitalist or a capitalism system. That's and that and, yeah. and so we're stuck in that paradigm and is, and as long as we're in that paradigm of a capitalist economic system, then inherently we're all trying to financially make money to stay afloat, which then causes us or maybe causes us in some cases to do things that maybe we can't follow our ethics completely pure, right? And so not only do I think that, yeah, there should be an ethic there, but it's also going to be really challenging to follow that ethic as long as we're all still in sort of the same cap consumerism capitalistic system. Very fair. Yeah. Yeah, the question I actually want to follow up with Emily with that is with the, your work with Landscape Architecture Foundation and, and looking to make these educational changes and looking at in better informing practitioners at every level, how do we reconcile the fact that while Jack had mentioned he thought the small firms were going to be the ones to move the needle the most, they're also the ones with the least resources to address all issues that might they may face in a project, right? So. Yeah, and also building off Keith's is, you know, yeah. when you talk about the economics, the economics of a very small firm having to meet those challenges versus ones that have maybe more of a buffer because their diversity in clients, larger uh, billable rates for, for larger projects. I think that's fair. I mean, I, I do think to have an extreme measurable impact, you do it does have to be somewhat top-down and that it has to be forced upon. I mean, not until the Clean Water Act was a thing, did we, were we really able to change the culture of design and development in the United States? And so that's evidence there that it does require those types of things. But what culminated to the Clean Water Act and before that, um, I, I personally feel that design should be activism as well. And so those incremental changes of changing um, the culture and shifting these things into making them seismic, I think is really important. And so you have to come at it from both angles. Yes, I flew an airplane to get here, uh, but one, but climate emissions, um, you know, 1% of climate emissions are from, from air travel. And so, yes, I feel guilty about it and I can't beat myself up about it, but I can do the best that I can. You know, I walk to work and those are just small things that aren't going to make a huge change, but it begins to shift the culture. I think that's so important to then force political action and get those top-down roles for those that aren't quite um, with us yet on the on the data that supports those decisions. I think Emily brings up a really, really good point. I'm a strong believer that it has to work both from the bottom up and top down simultaneously. It's really hard to push that sort of rock uphill from or downhill, um, if you use that analogy, from either end without it coming without it coalescing together. And so the example that Emily gave was great about, you know, the Clean Water Act and how that's really helped out from, the, in, at least in the United States, in terms of cleaning up water and what we're dealing with today. 
But you also had, at the time, the Cuyahoga River catching on fire 13 times and sort of this grassroots activist that were screaming for, we need better laws to clean up our waterways. So you saw the two coming together. And I think with climate change and with biodiversity, we're seeing that, at least in the U.S., from the grassroots, we're not getting much of it from our, our national leaders. Um, but I think that'll turn around shortly, and we'll really see that come together. And I think large firms and small firms um, have the capacity. In many ways, small firms can turn the ship a lot quicker than larger firms. So maybe they don't have the financial sort of wherewithal to turn down work or not go after certain work. They also are more nimble and can also pursue things or decide things really quickly where bigger firms might not have that luxury. So I think, again, just like from the top down, bottom up, there's large firms that can be doing certain things and there's small firms that can be doing certain things to help out with both the climate crisis and biodiversity. I think both of you hit on a point that I've been struggling with in getting students engaged in social issues because they, they, ha they want to engage in social issues, but then I wonder sometimes, are we properly preparing them? Because we often have a at least at the universities I've been at. I've been at Denver, I've been in Boulder, I've been in Wisconsin and here, and as great as those places are, they still are producing a lot of landscape architects that go into a very traditional site design, site development, client-driven sort of firm. And I think it was might have been Billy Fleming, but someone at UPenn um, during the Landscape Architecture Foundation recent kind of manifesto on climate change they made the premise that maybe we should also open up how we define what landscape architects can do and that they should be mayors, they should be uh, politicians, they should be uh, a wide variety of nonprofits beyond the design realm so they can begin to help start crafting policy and the rules and exerting pressure, not as a lobbyist, but from within the structure of the national and state. And I would say I, I feel very strongly that I think some of the most meaningful work that's being done are by landscape architects that aren't practicing traditional practice and in those non-traditional roles. And that's been a large discussion um, at NC State uh, and in the Landscape Architecture Foundation and other universities here, too. We just had the conversation over the past two days about preparing students for those non-traditional roles because I do think that's where the impact uh, can be made. And I think if you look at folks like Christian Gabriel with the United States General Services Administration and his role, what, a, what an impact he's had as a landscape architect with the tools that he was uh, you know, exposed to as a student of landscape architecture to build consensus and really enact uh, meaningful change at an institutional level. Yeah, it's interesting. One of the things that we sort of talk about in our firm and what I think about is I feel I, I think about this sort of Venn diagram of, of uh, activism, altruism, and capitalism and how those sort of overlap. And again, sort of capitalism, you know, there's this growing movement of a conscious capitalism and B corporations and that sort of thing are really changing the idea of what, how, how a business would operate, right? And I think that landscape architects can play a huge role in that bringing that sort of, those sort of overriding ethics or interests into a firm and saying, you know, it's not only what we're doing, it's how we're doing it as well. 
Yeah, and we, we prepare our students here at Penn State. I mean, I work mostly in the leadership development, and we're really proud that we've recently been recognized as being leaders of making leaders here because we do talk to them about the greater the greater good they can contribute mm -hmm. to. And yes, a lot of our students, we pride ourselves on preparing them to hit the ground running in practice. And they, so many of them, because we do have a focus of ecological design that we try to bring in, and we have the center that we um, encourage our students to participate in, you know, they're eager to work for biohabitats. They're eager to work for design workshop. They're eager to work for the places that they see walking the walk. What advice do you have for those students who this generation is primed and eager and they're ready to be the superheroes, the ecological designers being what they're going to do when they leave? And it, at Penn State, we are committed. NC State clearly has a commitment to it too because they have you as a professor of practice, Emily. So, I mean, what advice do you have to them that even if they go into a firm where maybe it's not biohabitats, it's not design workshop, it's not necessarily walking the walk yet, what can they do? That's a really good question. Um, luckily, I've been at firms where I didn't have to be too much of a boundary pusher, but I do think that the traditional ways um, that we practice in architecture and landscape architecture are shifting and the older generation are actually looking to the younger generation to um, look forward to a different way to practice. And so I always tell my students to push those boundaries, particularly as it relates to integrating research into the work that we do and evidence-based design um, and really breaking the mold of business as usual in the design professions, which I think the older generations get kind of caught in and uh, asking and really pushing the boundary for, can we have these venues for exploration, for creative tinkering, for risk taking as a part of our, our strat business strategy? Um, and so, you know, it, I don't have a perfect answer other than um, I, I think students and young people should feel confident in asking for that, that type of practice, even if it's incremental change with one project or an organizational change. Um, it can be done. I've seen it done. Um, but I think students just need to feel confident to, to demand that type of practice and, and to show examples of the large firms like Biohabitats or Sasaki or Design Workshop that are doing it, that are leaders in the profession and saying, this is what the next generation of design is going to be. So are you on board or, or are you going to be a dinosaur? <laughs> I think that, that was an excellent answer. And I think to add to that, first of all, they have to be good in their skill set and profession. They can't just come in and advocate for things and they're, they're, that's overriding not being having good skills in, say, landscape architecture point. or architecture, <laughs> right? So yeah. they, need to, they need to first make sure they have that under their belt. And then I think, think the second thing is they need to model that behavior when they're working in that firm, mm -hmm. right? Because that's what's going to get the attention. If we see a lot of people modeling certain behaviors and that's the way they're acting, then we're saying, okay, there is a shift going on here you know, maybe we need to shift as a firm as well in order to embrace that sort of culture. Um, so I would say those two things. First, make sure you're good at what you're doing. And then second of all, model that behavior when you're going in firms, because you have a lot more credibility in trying to ch change leadership's minds about what to do if you're actually doing that. So I want to follow up on the, the skills component or the knowledge being good at what you do. So let's say they have a good general design education. Um, what skills within ecology, within landscape architecture, or within the leadership roles 
or engagement roles um, do you think the academy is missing or we could do better? Hmm. Well, I'm not sure what you're doing now, so it would be hard to, <laughs> you know, honestly, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, what you could do better. I think we just spent a day and a half talking about different skill sets or behaviors that students could could uh, take on. Um, everything from, you know, excelling at critical thinking to always being curious to having a good set of their own personal ethics that they could bring to the table, um, to having integrity, to being humble. I mean, there's a whole bunch of sort of behaviors sure. that they could bring that, that I think both Emily and I and Design Workshop and Biohabitats um, uh, you know, would want to see in somebody mm -hmm. in addition to their proficiency in certain skill sets in landscape architecture. Mm -hmm. I also think that what we find are students that come with a uh, maybe a dual degree or a broad set of knowledge, say, in both ecology and landscape architecture or engineering and landscape architecture, or whatever the combination is there. And we find that that's very helpful as well. And I think the, the last thing that we didn't really talk about earlier today and in, in the work we were doing, but if, if a student can come and recognize the context that they're in, whether that's in the office or whether meeting with a client and recognizing how they fit into that context and being honest about what they know and they don't know and what they need to work on, I think that's pretty refreshing too. Right. Yeah, higher ed is making a general um, transition to responding to students as consumers and what they're asking for. And so many students are asking for student engagement to give them transformative experiences outside of the classroom. Now, landscape architecture students, I, design itself as a transformative experience. And, and to your point, there's students that will go through programs in dual major or dual degree, but a program like ours where we're trying to, we, what we do here is try to pack in as much of that broad education and commit to teaching beyond the LARE. We're, we're trying to teach to what we wish the LARE asked for, as opposed to just what's being tested. So by including ecology, ecological design in a multiple sequence of courses, plus having a engaged in the field field trip, you know, we, we're trying to build that in. And it's, it feels like the academy is, is trying to meet all these needs, yet responding to how expensive hmm. higher ed is. So, I mean, I think that's just, maybe that's just my plea as a career advisor, that mm -hmm. when you see a student from Penn State, you know, if we can help teach them as well how to communicate the wealth of what they might be getting, even if they don't have a dual degree, which would be nearly impossible here with the studio education. Sure, that's fair. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I'd like to give a plug for land-grant universities. And <laughs> 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 that I think it's very important, particularly in graduate education, that you have space to explore a depth of knowledge that you are, want to seek out. And having the resources that you have at Penn State or NC State or any of the other land-grant universities or the larger research institutions, I think are critical 
to the education. And you shouldn't be asking, hey, university, what give me something. But you should be saying, what can I you know, take charge of in my own education? And what are the resources available to me? And then choose your pathway based on that. And so I think that's really important that in graduate education, you're given that space to explore something and that you're able to take classes in natural resources or even take a statistics class. But you can't expect all landscape architects to be uh, had the same knowledge as an ecologist or a, even a horticulturist. I mean, you can't take one plant class and claim to know a whole palette of plants for wherever you live. Uh, it, it does take your own. That's where life, uh, lifelong learning and curiosity are so such important qualities to have as designers. But being able to access those resources through education is is important and makes you a great designer, eventually. <laughs> How do they do that in practice? Um, if they, how do how does someone in a small practice? They're trying to walk the walk. They're they're maybe moving the needle as the young designer in the room. How do they know when to encourage reaching out to the ecologist, the consultant, and not claiming that they already know it all? Well, I think a really important thing is for us all to know what we don't know, and be humble enough to reach out to experts um, when when you need to. But I also do want to say I, I think the academy has a role too in transfer of knowledge. We're, there's a lot of research, great research that's being out there, but there are no, there's no focus on implications of the work. So how does this apply to a designer or a planner? It's solely an objective observation of the world, and it's just sort of put out there in the ether for those of us really eager to know more about it to then translate it into our own practice. And so I think, again, the Academy should have a responsibility in translating that knowledge and being more transdisciplinary in paper reviews or just how that information can be applicable to the built environment. And there's just still not enough of that. And that's a huge gap for someone in a small firm. You can't expect them to do a full literature review, summarize all the information, and then translate it to this one thing that they're trying to do on their project. And that is another huge gap, I think, that needs to be filled that academia is well-suited to provide. So say through a, a podcast, through a podcast. Through ecology plus design, or maybe a great idea. You know, bring in some experts, have these nice conversations and share what we're the amazing research that our research team is doing as well and in a digestible way. Exactly. OK, thanks, exactly. Emily. Thanks for the plug. I also think um, that, you know, if you go into a firm and it's how how leadership in that firm models that behavior, too. Right. So if leadership is saying, you know, we're not a soils expert, we need to get soils consultants in to help out on a project. And they're they're seeing that as a firm overall pulls in experts, then that helps them. It, it creates more of a safe space for them to say, you know what, I don't know everything here, too. I need to pull in experts as well. So if that's modeled overall in the firm, I think it makes it much easier. If it's not and the firm is pretty insular and they're not bringing in outside experts and it's a lot harder from somebody inside to, you know, feel safe to do that. Yeah, I would agree. I, I, I think the follow-up on, on both of your points, uh, Emily's first with, yeah, the Academy has um, – I applaud land-grant institutions. I went to – there's my degrees are from all land-grant institutions, <laughs> and my teaching career so far has been all at land-grant institutions. Um, 
there used to be the role, particularly within the agricultural colleges, of extension. Extension. Mm-hmm. And you would hire faculty into research teaching with often some of their service being extension applied work. Um, I would think that across the university, though, at differing points, that that extension hasn't been pervasive. And I know myself being brand new on the tenure track, um, we aren't rewarded for that knowledge into things like Landscape Architecture Magazine uh, and such. And so I think that institutionally, we know we were talking earlier about the landscape architecture profession needing to change, but I think also then some of these land-grant institutions revisiting what it means to publish research or applied work or what extension models could be expanded into design center extension roles where you hire faculty into research and extension and teaching. Um, And then I think that modeling behavior then comes from the academy too, then that, hey, we are are putting our research into the hands of those that need it. And it is possibly easier for an insular firm to bring in an extension agent than to maybe bring on a very expensive subconsultant. You know, might make the barrier a little lower. Sure. <laughs> Perhaps, yeah. yeah. No, I, I, th- I think it's it's critical. If if every paper that gets published out there could just have an implications section, maybe we should just start a journal called Implications. Okay. I heard a volunteer for NC State to have an implications journal. Um, oh, they've already heard it. <laughs> I they're was, not interested. This is not news. Uh, no, no. I think for those listening here at Penn State, <laughs> we are also interested in supporting a crossover op- opportunity with uh, Emily. I. I've been involved. I had been involved with the Society for Ecological Restoration for uh, over a couple decades, and as a board member and then a chair, I was able to take their peer-reviewed journal, Restoration Ecology, and make them insert in every scientific article that came out what are the practical applied applications for that specific research that was being published. Right, and. While it probably is a little bit more general than I would like to see, it's that's the that's what we're talking about Absolutely. here is how can you take all that science that's being produced and put in peer review publications and how do you then interpret that of how it can be applied to the landscape? Oh, yeah, that's fantastic. I think the only barrier left then would be getting it into the firm's hands that aren't necessarily subscribing to very expensive academic journals. I, I'm not sure how your firms are, but a lot of the firms that I've worked or consulted with, our library often consisted of manuals and books and landscape architecture magazine, but but rarely journals. Well, and I think that's because most design firms were design firms and yep. they didn't have that interdisciplinary approach where a lot of the firms now are, are doing that and relying on research and science a lot more, which I've seen a trend in the last 10, 15 years than we did you know, 20, 25 years ago. So that's great to hear. Yeah. <laughs> There's still a lot of work to be done. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that, that is one of the main reasons we started this podcast is we want to not just sit in our, in our own spheres and ask, why isn't this working better? Why is the work that we're doing in academia not getting to where it needs to? Is it, are we trusting it to go out with the 22 to 24-year-olds that are graduating and walking out the door or the graduate students and asking them to carry it into their practice. And sure, yes, that is a big part of it. But also, what can we do better? I want to ask if either of you have want to give a shout out or want to 
share with us anyone you think we should be talking to? Is there anybody who's inspiring you with how they're making this bridge and this connection? Not to put you on the spot. We can edit out pauses. We can edit out the pauses. I'm... I'm struggling with that specifically. I just came from a conference that I'll, I'll do a little plug for called Bioneers out in California. And it's really all about environmental and, re, and social responsibility. And, you know, you have people like Paul Hawken there or the author Terry Tempest Williams and others that, for me, really inspire me about what's being done from an advocacy activism standpoint that I think landscape architects should be more aware of if they're not and and sort of figure out how to maybe maybe not it, it's not answering your question directly in terms of si- bringing science to the table but it's also bringing another I think really important role to landscape architecture and that's the activism part which I think a lot of landscape architect a lot of landscape architects and landscape architect firms are still too quiet on and I think we all need to play a louder, larger role in that. Yeah, that's, I mean, part of the reason we started our group here for the Landscape Architecture students, we call them the LA leaders. I hope you got to meet some of them while you were here. Yes, we did. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so my background is in law. And so here I am working, you know, in higher ed, not in my own sphere. So talk about crossover. But I mean, what I try to do with the students is to teach them advocacy about the things that matter to them. How do they how do they argue for their ideas? I watch them struggle to learn the art of doing it and critique. Mm. But also, how do they carry it forward? How do they do so the, the more um, subversive methods of, mm-hmm. I have this idea, I have received pushback. Is that the end? Or what do I do next? So, I mean, if you see people that are, are surprising you, you don't have to tell us today, but we'd love to hear from you okay. because... We are looking to lift up leaders, both here at Penn State, but also through this conversation, which is why we were absolutely thrilled to have both of you, because the work you do, walking the walk, is so impressive to us and to our students, and you help us keep that energy going. No, absolutely. I I can't say it better than that, so I'll just leave it at that. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I think that's a natural ending point, and so we'll end a little early. Get you on your plane. <laughs> Great. Thank you both right, so thanks. much. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Sorry, I didn't. I just sort of drew a blank 